Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Andrew Joseph. Andrew is a journalist at The Stat, which is affiliated with the Boston Globe. Uh, The Stat is a national publication that focuses on finding and telling compelling stories about health, medicine, and scientific discovery. Andrew recently wrote a number of in-depth articles on the repeal of ACA and its impact on the opioid epidemic. So, Andrew, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with one of your recent articles on uh, Virginia and how they were able to dramatically expand their treatment options for addiction. Um, And maybe they skirted the federal law. I'm not really sure, but hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that. So the communities that have been hardest hit by the opioid epidemic have had the most problems keeping up with demand as far as treatment facilities are concerned. And in Virginia, though, they found a way to expand from four all the way to 71 options for this in a very short period of time. So tell us a little bit about that story. Sure. And so that's specifically for um, people who are on Medicaid. If this is like the number of facilities that will uh, treat Medicaid patients and be able to be paid by the Medicaid program. And so what Virginia did is they got... Um, a waiver from the federal government that provided some funding for programs that traditionally Medicaid won't pay for um, so they could expand their addiction services because there are some rules in the Medicaid program that date back, some of which date back to the creation of the program in 1965 that um, advocates and providers say are pretty limiting in terms of treating addiction and mental and mental illness. And just as a just as a reminder, Medicaid is the um, government program that ensures people who are low income or have disabilities and the cost of the program is generally sp- split um, between the states and the federal government. All right. So before we get into some of those restrictions, let's talk just a little bit about the basics of what a waiver is. Can you define sure. that for us? Yeah. So a waiver, um, states can apply to the federal government for a waiver and they do a, um, you can apply for them in a variety of ways, but basically they allow you to run, um, for lack of a better term, like experiments in your Medicaid program to see if you can provide care to more people or in a more efficient way. And they allow you to get funding for things that Medicaid um, traditionally wouldn't cover. And so that, I mean, they, there's a variety of different types of waivers. 
Um, what happened is in 2015, the Obama administration started offering waivers specifically for um, what they call substance use disorders or, you know, for addiction treatment, just because they were recognizing the problem um, was such a, was, was, you know, so serious and that they were trying to find new ways to treat as many people as they could um, in light of the opioid epidemic. Do you, do you think most states, it's, it's commonly known that this is an option to states out there? Because they, they seem to be, all of them seem to, or most of them seem to struggle with Medicaid and the, the provisions there. Sure. I think the um, the idea that you can apply to the federal government for a Medicaid waiver is known among health officials in um, probably in all states because um, they have them for a variety of purposes. In terms of this relatively new type of waiver that came out in 2015, I think because it's new, states are still trying to assess exactly what their options are and what these might do. So Virginia was... Um, the fourth state to obtain a waiver, and its uh, impact started being felt in April. Um, California, Maryland, and Massachusetts have already received waivers as well, and I know there are other states sort of looking at what Virginia has done um, and are probably considering waivers as well. And the the Trump administration has um, indicated that they'll continue offering these substance use disorder waivers. Ah, okay. Well, that's very positive. That's one positive thing there. So, Uh, the restrictions that you talked about a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. Among those rules, one that prohibits facilities that treat mental illness or substance use disorder from receiving federal Medicaid dollars if they have more than 16 beds. That's a a rule that's been out there since the 60s, right? 1965, I think. Yeah. Part of of that dates to the 60s. I think the number of... um, specific beds in that rule has has changed over time. But yes, this idea that you can't receive federal doll, federal Medicaid dollars if you're a, a facility of a certain size is, dates back to 1965, yes. So providers have this financial disincentive for serving more clients. So mm-hmm. um, how, how specifically was Virginia able to get around this using that waiver? Also, as part of that, I'd like to understand how long it took them to to do that, to accomplish that, if you have a sense for that. Sure. So just one thing real fast, and because that rule does sound so crazy these days, um, it dates back to a time when um, the federal government didn't want federal Medicaid dollars going to state psychiatric institutions because um, they thought that was like an expense um, the state should should cover. And of course, you know, there's been a huge movement um, of mental illness treatment from institutions out into the community. So like, they kind of acknowledge that that rule is a bit outdated just because there aren't a ton of state psychiatric institutions around anymore. Um, So anyways, um, in terms of how Virginia was able to get around that, um, before getting the waiver, they actually, the Virginia legislature and governor took it upon themselves to make some changes in their program. to try to show the federal government that they were serious about this. And so what they did is that they started, um, as part of a budget, they passed a program that basically set up um, a continuum of care, you know, all the way from inpatient detox to outpatient detox to um, medication-assisted treatment to counseling to um, recovery homes. So they just wanted to make sure that show the federal government that they could have this infrastructure set up if the federal government would award this waiver and sort of contribute some funding for it. Um, 
And so after that was passed by the legislature, um, the federal government approved the waiver. And I honestly don't know exactly how long it took, but it, it took, you know, probably a year of planning. Um, and then, um, and then once everything was approved, it took some, some months of training the, the providers to get ready. And so these things didn't really start going into effect in, until um, April. And so what the waiver did was provided some federal funding for these wide-ranging services, which um, traditional Medicaid won't always pay for for most adults. But the thing about the waivers is that they want to see that states are able to provide that full continuum of care. Um, but because Medicaid will limit what they'll pay for for adults, or for most adults, they'll pay for pregnant women for some additional services. Um, they wanted to, the federal government has basically indicated that, that if they're going to offer some more money for services they wouldn't traditionally pay for, they want to make sure those services are available. So as part of what Virginia passed actually as well was an increase in the reimbursement rate, and that's the amount that Medicaid will pay to a provider, for example, for offering counseling or um, offering um, a Suboxone clinic. And so they increase, and those rates can for Medicaid can be quite low, so a lot of doctors won't want to treat Medicaid patients. So they boosted those rates by a lot to try to bring more providers um you know, into the Medicaid fold and being and make them willing to see Medicaid patients. So that's an, another reason why the um, number of providers willing to see Medicaid patients went um, went up by so much. And because they boosted the reimbursement rate, um, you mm -hmm. now have uh, many, many more providers in that state that are accepting Medicaid, right? Right, exactly. Because um, now it makes financial sense to um, be participating and treat Medicaid patients, and also um, it provided sort of a business rationale to open new programs or expand programs. So in your opinion, Andrew, is this a viable model for other states to pursue? You know, um, I know some states, I think West Virginia and Kentucky have been talking with Virginia about what they did. You know, it's, it's kind of state by state. Um, you know, each State has its own Medicaid authority, um, and so it depends on what they think is best. And also, this took the this took the what happened in Virginia took um, an effort by the legislature and governor. And you know, the cost of their side of things is an estimated to be sixteen million dollars in the first year, um, and you know that could go up or down in the future. And so, it's a matter of what the state budget looks like and where they want to um, put their priorities, because there is some state money involved in if they were to follow exactly what Virginia did. Okay. So beyond offering the waivers, federal Medicaid mm -hmm. officials last year issued a new rule that allowed some Medicaid programs to cover longer stays. How did that work? Um, so this gets a little in the policy weeds, but um, the rule allows for private plans that administer Medicaid pro um, plans. So there are sometimes private insurers that sort of administer, um, that are basically contracted to administer Medicaid plans, even though it's public money. Um, uh, public, uh, sorry, um, those private plans can pay for stays at some of those um, facilities that now can have more than 16 beds for up to 15 days for all adults, and that used to not be the case. Um, but um, that doesn't apply to plans that are um, run by the actual state Medicaid program. So that's um, one area where advocates say that some progress has been made, but it just kind of goes to show that there are limits um, still imposed by the actual Medicaid statute and law. Hmm. 
Okay. When the Republicans' first effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act collapsed earlier this spring, they didn't give up. On May 4th, Republicans again reframed their bill as a way to give patients more freedom in their insurance choices, allowing them to buy plans that fit their needs instead of being mandated to buy coverage for services they would never use. But the bill's huge cuts to Medicaid could cause millions of lower-income people to lose their coverage. The bill also gives states the flexibility to redefine which essential benefits insurance plans must cover. Yeah, so just a little background. Under the Affordable Care Act, um, states were given the option to expand Medicaid to cover uh, more low-income adults. Um, in traditional Medicaid, um, if you're a childless adult, it's quite hard for you to be on Medicaid. It mostly goes to treat um, children or people with disabilities or um, parents with children who are low income. Um, but the expansion basically uh, allowed anyone who makes under a certain amount of money to be covered. And 31 states and, the, and Washington, D.C. decided to expand um, their Medicaid program. And advocates say that's like been a big boon, uh, especially for addiction treatment, because um, you know a lot of people who struggle with addiction are low income and can't couldn't afford their own insurance, and so they rely on Medicaid to enter treatment programs and find um, you know get prescriptions for Suboxone or get counseling and that type of thing. Um, and so you know the the legislation to repeal and place the Affordable Care Act. It's through the House, but the Senate has vowed they're going to change it, so it's a little bit hard to say what it might may or might not do. Um, but they're, they're, according to some analyses of um, a version of the bill that the House has passed, um, it would lead to pretty, um, pretty major medic cuts to Medicaid, um, over $800 billion over uh, 10 years, and that would lead to an estimated 14 million people losing Medicaid coverage. So that includes the entire expansion population around the country, and then um, actually a couple million people more. Um, so there's a lot of fear in states that have been hard hit by the opioid epidemic that did expand Medicaid, um, which include West Virginia and Kentucky and Ohio, um, as well as Massachusetts, um, that, you know, these people who only got health insurance maybe for the first time ever in the past couple of years could lose it in the next couple of years. And the point they make is that, you know, recovery is a, can be a years long process. And so you might, it might not only prevent new people from getting into recovery, but it also might take away recovery services from people who are in the midst of their recovery. In your latest article, you wrote about a recovery counselor that told you she used to have someone else listen to her voicemail messages because she just couldn't handle hearing more people tell her they were going to die with a needle in their arm if they couldn't get some help. Meanwhile, she knew that she had to add them to waiting lists that could take more than a year to climb. I mean, that was yeah. the desperate environment that, uh, that they lived in prior to Medicaid expansion. So if this bill doesn't pass, then as it sits, anyhow, uh, we would go back to that world. Um, you know, I, it's a little bit hard to say what might or might not happen. And there are um, a number of uh, Republican governors and senators who have raised concerns about cuts to Medicaid and what it might mean for addiction treatment. Um, the woman you were referring to, she's an addiction counselor who's actually in recovery um, herself. And, you know, the thing, it's not like with the ACA or the Medicaid expansion that 
all of a sudden there's no such thing as a waiting list. That's that's not the case. Um, there waiting lists still exist, and there are plenty of doctors who actually won't take Medicaid patients just because in some places the reimbursement rates are so low. Um, so it's not like it solved the problem. Clearly, the problem is not solved. But their point is that um, it's at least provided some some way for more people to start getting more treatment. And so to take that away would yeah to go, be to go backwards in their in their view. I mean that just sounds devastating. And also, you know, on the other side of things, the the story that we opened up with um, in Virginia, what they've done to dramatically expand that. Um, so just going back to that for a second, utilizing mm-hmm. the waiver process that they went through, let's just suppose that this legislation that has been passed by the House makes it through as it sits, makes it through the Senate. What impact will that have on Virginia's now program with mm-hmm. their waivers? So I'm not actually sure if it would have um, an impact. And, to, and actually, to be clear, Virginia is one of the 19 states that did not expand Medicaid. So if you are um, a childless adult who doesn't make a lot of money in Virginia, you probably you have a few options for finding insurance. Like you, Medicaid probably won't cover you. Um, so they, they still have like a, tr- you know, what they still serve what like a traditional Medicaid population and have not um, expanded. So if another state were looking at what Virginia did and decided to kind of copy it, and their program could very well be more expensive because they likely have more beneficiaries in their state. Um, so, but, you know, the, the waiver program is separate from the Affordable Care Act as far as I know, so I'm not sure if the Medicaid expansion were repealed or these cuts to Medicaid went through. Um, maybe it might threaten some federal funding to the, for the Virginia waiver, but I'm not quite sure exactly what impact it would have. Okay. So obviously, when we get in the weeds to this level, it gets pretty complex. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Medicaid is very important, but it is it is pretty confusing, especially because each state has its own Medicaid program. Yeah. So, but from a very high level, Medicaid expansion, because a state goes through Medicaid ex- expansion, that does mm-hmm. not uh, cut off the option of pursuing waivers for that state, right? Two no, separate no, no, programs. No. Waivers, mutually. Waivers, no, no, it doesn't. They can still apply for waivers. And, you know, California, Maryland, and Massachusetts, the first three states that got one of these substance use disorder waivers, um, I believe all three of them did expand their, their Medicaid population. Okay. So now let's move along. You attended a Trump meeting. Trump's, uh, his people have been going across the country uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, talking up this new commission that they've put together uh, mm-hmm. to address the opioid epidemic led by mm-hmm. Governor Christie. And I understand that they've added some people to that team at this point. Mm-hmm. So the team, who does that consist of now today? Sure. So the commission was announced in March and that it was going to be led by New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who has made um, sort of opioid issues a pretty um, – pretty important part of his uh, administration in the past couple of years. He's he's um, on his way out of the governor's mansion, but um, he will stay. Yeah, he will be leading this commission for President Trump. And then this week it was announced uh, that President Trump intended to appoint four more people, and that is um, Governor Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, uh, Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina, um, as well as... Um, 
sorry, as well as uh, Patrick Kennedy, who's a congressman from, or sorry, a former congressman from um, Rhode Island who's been um, a strong advocate for mental illness and addiction treatment and who um, has been open about his addiction, as well as Bertha Madras, who is a researcher at Harvard Medical School who studies the biology of addiction, um, and she formerly served in the at the Office of National Drug Control Policy under the George W. Bush administration. That uh, sounds like a formidable team, certainly. Yeah, and it is a, I mean, it is a bipartisan group. Um, you know, you have a Republican governor, you have a Democratic governor. Um, and so and these people are all pretty expert. You know, the governors come from states that have been hard hit by opioids. Um, there, I guess one thing to bring up about the commission, I mean, and, you know, the commission says it will come out with its recommendations um, later this year. The, there's been some questions about whether, like, we really need another commission just because this issue has been studied a lot. There's been plenty of reports about it. Um, you know, the, the Surgeon General, our former Surgeon General last year issued a, a pretty sweeping report about how this can be tackled. So, um, but, you know, you're absolutely you're right. This It's a pretty, pretty expert panel with people who are, right, who are pretty dedicated to this. So, but it's also, I observe the, it's kind of skewed with politicians, um, what uh, what would be your thoughts on balancing that out by having uh, representatives from the recovery community, specifically recovery community as it relates to opioid addiction, as well as yeah. families, families that ex- have experienced loss? Those voices seem to be the loudest voices out there uh, on this issue and advocating for change as far as the opioid epidemic to try and stem the tide on this. And not having representation on the commission seems to be really very short-sighted. What are your thoughts? Um, you know, I'm not sh- – I wouldn't – I think the commission may still get some additional members. I think this was just the first group. Um, so I'm not quite sure about that. Um, Patrick Kennedy is actually like a pretty uh, well-known advocate. I mean, he's in recovery, so he's like he kind of comes from the recovery community in addition to being, you know, obviously from a major political family. Um and actually, you know, Trump administration officials make the point that they are seeking out personal stories. Um, this week, Tom Price, who's the Secretary for Health and Human Services, and Kellyanne Conway, a counselor to the president, have been traveling around. They've been to Michigan, West Virginia, Maine, and New Hampshire. And I was um, there in New Hampshire yesterday when they were there, um, kind of having listening sessions with providers and law enforcement and advocates and local politicians as well as people who are in recovery and people who have lost family members to addiction. Um, so that is, they, I, I think they are, and they made, you know, Kelly and Conway made the point that, that, that those are some of the most important people to listen to. So um, I'm not sure if the commission is set or not or, you know, what m- might be missing, but it does seem like they are trying to get those, trying to listen to those people. Okay. So you spent plenty of time researching and writing on this topic. What other observations do you have for our listeners, Andrew? Uh, I was talking to someone recently who made the point that this, this issue kind of keeps changing, so it is important, you know, maybe it is important to have another commission kind of staying on top of this. Um, it kind of keeps morphing. Um, and there's, 
relatively new things that kind of keep coming up that you know officials might not have a handle on. And, and this 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 person was a former Obama administration official, and she she pointed to a couple things. One is just um, the threat of infectious disease as a result of injection drug use, particularly in rural areas. There's been pockets of Kentucky and Indiana that have seen just like massive spikes in HIV and hepatitis C. And so uh, uh, trying to think about how to prevent that and then how to best treat the people who are, um, who do contract diseases from sharing needles. Um, and then another thing she pointed out is the growth um, uh, in the rates of babies born dependent on opioids, which is called neonatal abstinence syndrome, and sort of how, and then the effect on the, the foster care system. Um, so this this epidemic has sort of like a long reach and many consequences, and so and they keep changing, and so it's important to kind of keep staying with that and trying to figure out the sort of best practices for each new problem that arises. Yeah, uh, no doubt I've been exposed to uh, those topics um, in our series of podcasts. Okay, Andrew, um, really appreciate your time. This has been uh, very, very uh, just illuminating in, in terms of some of the things that are going on, particularly as it has to do with Medicaid expansion and uh, the waiver process that Virginia and some other states have gone through to get uh, additional coverage. Any final thoughts for our listeners before we conclude today's podcast? No, I think that I think that um, wraps it up. But thank you so much for um, for paying attention to this, and you know, for for having me on. I really appreciate it. Okay, we've been joined today by Andrew Joseph, who is a journalist at the Stat, which is affiliated with the Boston Globe, a national publication focused on finding and telling compelling stories about health, medicine and scientific discovery. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time. <laughs>